Welcome to the MS Gym Podcast, where we give you the tools to live life by design, not by diagnosis. I'm your host, Brooke Slick, and here we go. Welcome to this episode that shines a light on the role of the MS caregiver. Just as MS itself is unpredictable, so is the amount of care that an MS patient may require over the course of their disease. It's for that reason the definition of the term caregiver can range from something as simple as lending a shoulder to cry on to more physical tasks such as transferring a patient in and out of a car or helping them to get dressed. Depending on the caregiver's relationship with the patient, the role of caregiver may be one that is 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. It can be as daunting and exhausting as it is rewarding. But make no mistake, the role of the caregiver is crucial to the quality of life for the patient and requires patience, resilience, resourcefulness, and a willingness to know when it's time to ask for help. Today's guest, Samantha O'Halloran, through her own trial and error, is the epitome of what the all-encompassing position of a caregiver is. Samantha, she goes by Sam, has been her husband Aaron's biggest advocate since he was first diagnosed with MS in 2012. Like so many other MS stories, their journey has not been a linear one. From failed drug treatments to her own catastrophic medical emergency, Sam is about to share an honest account of what the day-to-day of a caregiver looks like. Over the years, Sam has crafted her own way of making it through the trenches, and I'm confident her upfront advice on the realistic expectations of stepping into this vital role is going to touch the hearts and minds of others facing the same task. Let's get started. Sam, thank you so, so much for joining us today. Hi, Brooke. Thanks for having me. I'm honored that you've invited me along. All the way from Australia, no less. Yes, all the way down under. And you are right outside of Sydney or you're in Sydney? So we're classed as within Sydney's uh, main area, but we're right on the outskirts. So we're about 45 minutes to an hour from the actual city centre, from the Harbour Bridge and from the Opera House. Awesome. All right, Sam. Um, everybody, I've given them a little bit of background about you and your wonderful husband, Aaron. And I'd kind of like to know the evolution of his disease as it correlates to the level of care that you have had to give him from the beginning, how much care you had to provide up to now. If you could kind of like. Yeah, sure. So I think so Aaron was diagnosed. Finally, we say finally diagnosed in 2012. He'd already had lots of uh, instances that we can now relate that were MS showing in his life since probably 19. So he'd probably been living, we'd been living with it our whole life. It wasn't until he was diagnosed in 2012 that his disability was noted as already almost halfway through the EDS scale. So he was already a four and a half, dragging his foot. He was having huge problems with uh, memory. Uh, there was other little things that we can now pick up that were happening back then. So I guess in 2012, when he was diagnosed, my care for him was still there. I was still doing quite a bit. I was doing bills. I was doing the, we were, we were running a business. His involvement in that was starting to decline his abilities. In 2013, I was still working part-time and that's when everything, I guess, the rug was pulled out from under us and Aaron had to stop working. So we had to close out, I had to close our business um, and I began being more time care. I had to 
quit my casual job that I was working in. And then by 2014, I was his full-time carer. So in in that he was in a wheelchair by then, so helping with transfers, helping showering, food, help, helping getting around the house, transferring cars, just really became a, a strong bird in 2014, I'd say. And it's even more so now. So it's, <clears throat> it's continued then the last five years. And by this time, how many different drugs had he been on? Which one? So because Aaron is primary progressive, there is many. But at the start, with uh, as with most MS patients, they do try and diagnose you or put the diagnosis down as either relapsing, committing or prime or secondary progressive because then they can diagnose those those drugs. And so he was given two different drugs at the start. So they started at the very top of the pyramid, as they, they told us in 2013, they gave him Tysabri. Uh, and it was very early in the JCV uh, stages where they just discovered that there was JCV right. interactions with this drug and that it was causing PML. But they were sending the tests overseas. It was going to be at least six weeks till we got the results back. We had to make the decision really quickly whether he, he would take the drug or not. Uh, the results came back. The very day of the infusion, they told him he was positive, but that a lot of people could stay on the drug for two years without any interactions. They weren't testing the actual TETA levels at that stage, so we didn't right. know how high JCB he was. We just knew he was JCB. Right. And we were looking down a dark tunnel. We knew things were getting bad, so we thought, give this a shot. It can't hurt. In hindsight, it did hurt. So he, he was very high on the um, scales of JCB then found out later and very bad reaction and was placed in uh, ICU and was battling for his life for about two weeks. Uh, he came out of that and they continued down the path in being secondary progressive, in my opinion, so they could prescribe these drugs and they prescribed Gilenia. Yeah. So he was placed on Gilenia for eight months. He was on that. Uh, during which time he had numerous heart issues were raised. And he had sight issues, so he had the macular degeneration starting to happen from Gillen, we believe. So we took him off that. It was at that stage that we, I had started researching other treatments. What else is out there? This is it. This is the end of the line for us. They're, they're not working, these drugs that they're prescribing. So I was looking at alternatives all over the world, looking on the internet, searching, researching, and that's when I discovered HSCT. That was our last. Last chance, I believe. Uh, so we tried HSCT in 2014, raised the funds and got from Australia to Russia. At the time of arriving in Russia, Aaron was already six to six and a half. And Dr. Pedrenko gave him approximately a 70% chance of success at this treatment. And this, um, at this point, he was officially diagnosed as PPMS. Sorry, yeah, so skip tiny little bit we found another doctor so during the research into hsct i found another doctor in australia that had done the, pro the procedure here in australia but had been closed down and we traveled to canberra from sydney to visit this doctor and he was in agreement that aaron wasn't secondary progressive he was primary progressive given the history of the disease and that was the big thing i i don't think doctors play enough importance into the carer's role in knowing what's happened in the past so i've been with aaron since he was 19. And I know, I can see the progression. It wasn't relapses and remission. He never had the remission. It was just things just got worse and worse over the years. And we 
as I said, we blamed his life. We blamed he was a mechanic, he was an active man, he was fit, he rode motorbikes, he crashed motorbikes, crashed dirt, dirt bikes, raced. He was doing all these active activities and breaking bones and so he was, we were just blaming all the tingling and all the sensations and, you know, he'd walk into, he walked into a glass window once and blamed a little bit of the memory loss on the walking into a glass window. He was clumsy. You know, we never blamed it. We never thought this was going to be something devastating as primary progressive and I don't believe the doctors listened to my opinion in that regard as right. as the carer, as the person been by his side and this whole thing progress over 20-plus years. So, yeah, he was finally diagnosed as primary progressive and there is nothing for that, so that's what led to knowing that HSCT was the goal we had to aim for. But as I said, he was given a 70% chance of success and to have 70%... There has to be 30, and Aaron fell in that 30% of non-responders. So he has continued to progress, and his need for care has increased since that time. So five years has definitely increased a lot. So can you share with us exactly what level of care from whomever is caring for him? Are you his primary? So I'm his primary carer, but I'm not the only person. We have do have paid carers that come to the house to assist with certain things, and it's going to that's going to because my my health is paying for being a full-time carer and I can't continue to do everything. So I guess he's paralysed from the waist down, so he can't move his legs by himself at all. So that makes transferring very, very difficult. So we have to transfer him in and out of bed, in and out of wheelchairs, in and out of modes. We do have a hoist to assist with that, but it's a two-person hoist. So a lot of the times it's easier just to try and transfer with a slide board or with a slide sheet something like that rather than using the hoist because the hoist, as I said, needs two people and there's not always two people. It's quite often just me and him by ourselves. He's got a, a catheter as well that needs care, so that needs daily attendance and bowel care that needs to be attended to because as with MS, a lot of people have loss of, of continence and loss of bowel control and he has had that. So he has nurses to assist with that, which is really undignified for a 46-year-old man. and. Right. That's something I don't do. We do have somebody come in so that he, so I can keep that little bit of a distance. But we often say I'm his carer, but it's it's hard to be a wife and a carer. So I like to distinguish between right. the two roles by giving other people tasks that are less, that are a little bit too impersonal, so that it just it crosses that barrier, I guess, between carer and wife. Yeah. So in the beginning, or earlier on. You didn't have as much care as you do now, did you? No, nowhere near. No, you were obviously, doing a lot of it on your own. Yes, I did for a long time, and for a few reasons because it's expensive to get carers in yeah. the door, and we're only on a pension now. So, because I am full time carer, we get in Australia. We are lucky, I guess. We are blessed. We get a carer's pension, and I get a carer's allowance. But really, that's compared to what life costs when you're living with a chronic aggressive disease because right. of the medications and the pain, doctor's visits, just all the other things. Now, as happens with many caregivers, you spend so much time concentrating on a patient that you put your own needs, in particular medical needs, aside. Maybe you don't go get a mammogram you should have gotten or a colonoscopy or just little signs and symptoms that you blow off because all of the attention is going to the person you're caring for. 
And I know Absolutely. for your particular case, that was a detriment to your health. I wasn't listening to my own health. I know I was very tired. I was fatigued. I was experiencing dizzy periods, just periods of, of real bad headaches. Um, but I was putting that down to full-time carer. And yeah, as you said, I wasn't concentrating on myself. I wasn't looking at those symptoms being signs of something very, very serious. And as it happens, 12 months to the day after Aaron's transplant. So we went out to celebrate Aaron's 12-month stem cell transplant day. At that stage, we hadn't grasped that it was not working and that it was not, he was a non-responder at that stage. We still believed this, this period of recovery. So we went out to celebrate and thought all was fine. And unfortunately, all wasn't so fine with my heart. We were walking through a major shopping centre. It came up. Not the same as Kmart in America, but Kmart. I passed out while talking phone to my mother, and turns out that the pass out was a cardiac arrest. Uh, I split my head open, went into convulsions on the floor in the sh- major shopping centre, and was rushed off, rushed into ICU. Subsequently, had a pacemaker. So I'm now four years post transplant from a pacemaker. So I have an implant running my body, and I'm bionic. But yeah, that was a huge, huge thing. I. How old were you at that time? 42. No signs prior to that of any heart condition. No, nothing to tell me that my, you know, that there was anything in my family genetically or anything that I would lead me to think I would have heart problems at any time in my life. So it was a big shock, big reality, big shake up. Yeah. What did they attribute it to? Stress. Okay. Absolutely. 100%. My cardiologist uh, tells me I'm one of two patients that he has that have this particular electronic issue with their heart and can't find any medical reasons, any causes. There's no, I don't have, I'm not unfit. My my heart rates aren't unusual for my age. It was just a case of my heart saying I've had enough, (laughs) I think. Um, And five cardiac arrests later, they put pacemaker in. So, yeah, scary. But as I said, a, a reality shake. Definitely a warning to other caregivers listening who are living on the fray and burning the candles at both ends and not Absolutely. paying attention to pay attention to your own body. Yeah, yeah, pay attention to what it tells you. You're you can't look after them if you're not well yourself, can you? It sent our world into a I didn't know what we would do. We had nobody really to call on. We had to call my father down from a thousand kilometres away to take care of Aaron, the son, at the time. You don't think the worst would happen, but if something happens to you, what happens to them? So right. Got to like if the carer becomes patient, then That's right. can you tell me what types of modifications did you have done to your house to help make a living? For you and for Aaron, a little easier. It's done now in the last six years. We started with just doorways and ramps up to the front door so that he could get in and out of the front door because we have a step at our front door. We are lucky to have a single-level house, but it was a step in the front door, so we got ramps put in in the front door. The front door was widened. The bathrooms, we've had to modify all our bathrooms so that he can use either bathroom because travelling to one bathroom might take too long. and Unfortunately, with MS, the incontinence issue means we have to get there now. So we've modified both bathrooms. We're actually having kitchen modifications starting in about three weeks so that the kitchen, so that he can access a few more things independently in the kitchen. But at the moment, he's totally dependent on us. We 
can't reach right. to any of the cupboards. He couldn't get to the kettle. He can't. He couldn't cook. He couldn't. Couldn't really do anything himself without uh, being unsafe. So we're getting the kitchen modified. We're also having a stair lift put in out the back. So Aaron was a mechanic. I shouldn't say he was because he is, and that's his passion and hobby. And but he can't get to his shed out the back because it's down a set of stairs and we have a very steep property. So if he goes around the side of the house, he can't get back up the side because it's too steep. So he can roll down, but he can't back up. So we're having a stair lift put in so that Aaron can get out the back in his power chair or by or his manual chair, whichever he's in, by himself and know he can get back into the house quickly if he needs to, to get to the bathroom again. And That's he can incredible. just sit out there. So we've had to modify out the back so he can get out there as well. So modify doors, widen doors a little bit. Yeah, that's that. they're the major thing we've had to do. Bedroom has a, sorry, a adjustable bed so that that's easier for transferring so it goes up and down as all the features that are, I guess, a, a hospital bed, similar to a hospital bed would have. So that is hard too because that makes your bedroom a lot more like a hospital facility right. in any way. Right. And that I empathise with other carers on as well because it's hard. You're living, uh, you've got lots of medications around, you've got a whole wardrobe full of catheters and bags and creams and all the different things that you're going to need throughout any day. Yeah, and that fills one of our wardrobes. So it's it's a very different life. I don't think if you're not living it, I don't think other people really appreciate how much it takes over your entire life. How do you try to find moments of normalcy? Can you find moments of normalcy when, when if even for a minute you forget that MS even exists? So for me, I my normal normalcy but for me, being normal is volunteering for a charity that I've been involved in for 19 years. So I guess it's it's work as well. For me, it gets my brain active again, gets me involved in the community that I used to be involved for work myself. So it's getting back into the, the industry that I, I know and love myself. So I give a lot of time to that charity and that takes me away from MS and puts me into a different world. So it puts me into a world where I'm in, I guess I'm important. I mean something to, to people and I make a difference. I know I make a difference to Aaron. That's the vows that I made. I made right. those vows to make a difference to him. Right. This is something for me. So it really, I'm giving back. I'm still giving back to the community and I'm still helping out with the charitable event, but I really love it. I, yeah, it, that's my, that's my escape. That's my escape. I think it's pretty common. I know this. And my father didn't have a chronic illness, but at a very young age, he was in his early 40s, he had a heart attack. And during that time, I still remember him sitting in his rocking chair and he couldn't comb his hair because he couldn't, he wasn't supposed to put his hands above his head. He couldn't tie his shoes. He could, there were all these things he couldn't do and he became very angry. I remember one incident where he had a tray of food beside him. Just one tiny little thing, he took his hand and he threw that tray of food the entire way across the room. Understandably, especially, you know, now that I I have MS and I know what it's like to lose your ability to do something when, you know, you're young and still vital, anger comes. And then I know it's typical with MS, you know, a care and a spouse or family member having MS and the caregiver being with them 24 seven, 
people lash out, people say things they wouldn't normally say, you know, tempers are short. How do you find a way back to each other where you're able to speak to each other in a more respectable way, in a more caring way? Yeah, I do. And and MS is such a confusing disease, as you've just explained. It just is, you can't, there's no two people are exactly the same. So no two will ever handle that. It's so unpredictable. Um, and each time something happens, it's unpredictable as well. So it's not like every time, like your dad would get frustrated at that plate when Aaron gets frustrated that he can't get to the kitchen or get something. It's not the same reaction every single time, the way that we or I handle it. And so I've learned different ways of coping. And one day it might work that we joke about it, we laugh about it between the two of us. And we're allowed to because we live with it every single day. So I pick on him, I guess people would think. If they heard it from outside, um, I can play a joke on it. I can make him laugh. Yeah. And that's the way of getting through it. But another day, that might not work. That might make him angrier because he might feel that I'm picking on him, that I'm being mean right. because of whatever has happened an hour before or, you know, in the last minute, whatever. We can't handle that at that time. So I'll then change the mannerisms, change the way that I handle it and perhaps be the really compassionate, caring, understanding person that is needed at that moment and understand that this isn't me and it's not my fault. It's, it's, he might be screaming and shouting at me, but it is definitely not me. It's MS through and through, 100%. And I've got this theory and I share it with many other carers that I'm on carers groups with and I call it the mirror theory. I don't know if it's a real theory. I don't know if I've made this theory up or if it's real. Somebody tell me if it's real, please. Um, I call it the mirror theory because to me I'm I'm holding a mirror up in front of me back at him because what he's angry at is himself and I need to be able to rebut that. I need to reflect to him, not to give it back, just for myself so it doesn't hit me. Let's just call it that. I'm putting it up the, the barrier. The mirror is the barrier to say, hey, I know this is coming and I know you're angry and I know you're frustrated, but I also know it's not and I also know it's not my fault, which when it first started, back in the early days when he was just losing the ability to walk and, and sometimes not be able to talk or remember or get something out of his mind, it was a lot harder and it was a lot harder for me to handle. It felt very personal, very raw, very, very real. Even now, just thinking about it, reliving it, even the times that he would be aggressive or abusive or, yeah, throw things, throw an entire room out, out the window. We had some really bad times and I've spoken to other carers about really, really harsh times. And when you go into a carers group that isn't an MS-based carers group, you often get, oh, don't put up with that. Can't have that. You've got to leave. Get out. Get out. Don't do that. You know, you're doing the wrong thing. You're, you're allowing it. You're letting him get away with it. And it's very hard to explain to those people, and I think MS carers understand this a lot more, that this disease takes over at some stage. They just can't control. And Aaron said that after after months of this happening, he realised he couldn't control what he was saying. It was like somebody else was in control of his body while he's, while it's all happening. He's blurring all this out and telling me how horrible I am, how much he hates me. And he's thinking in the back of his head, stop. Why are you doing this to her? You've got to stop doing this. This is not right. But he can't. So that helped us both to appreciate that it's not me and he has no control over it often. And that it's the like you said, the frustration, the anger is just coming out because he has no other way of controlling it. His 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 life is not in in his control anymore. MS has control of his life. 
Right. Now, you mentioned um, you belong to support groups. Yes. Do you recommend to other caregivers, you recognize that you can't do it all yourself or other caregivers to hear. And number yes. two, do you have other people, groups to lean on for information, to vent, to just as an outlet for you? Absolutely. I've got a few and they all have their own purpose. As I said, I've got caregiver groups that, I'm, that aren't focused on MS. So they're just caregiver groups, but I've also got very focused MS caregiver groups and they, I believe, are really important for somebody who's living with MS as an MS carer because you read stories and, and think to yourself, that happened to me or it was almost the exact same thing happened to me last week or you read something and when it does happen to you, you realise you're not alone, it's not you, it is the disease, this is common. Or you can go to the group and ask them, is this something? else experience what you what do you think about this is this you know common with ms and again the the thing that stands out for me is that what you mentioned before the anger and the frustration and it being taken out on the caregiver and that does happen with other diseases obviously as well and brain damage and other other aspects of caregiving but it is so much in the ms caregiving well it is just i'm yeah we could all grab each other and hug each other because this is something that is so common and you're not alone with it. And that's that's the thing that I have found the best help for me just to know there are others living almost the exact same as me. And it's helped me to explain it to my friends and family as well because they see what's happening in our lives and see what I forsake, what I've done, what I'm giving up in my life and the way it's impacted my health. It's very hard for your loved ones and your family and your friends that aren't living this life of and aren't living with MS to really appreciate or understand why you do it and why you're still putting up with it, I guess, in their eyes, or why you're allowing this behaviour. And to be able to explain that you're not alone. There are hundreds of cases. I can show. I can jump on and show you them, you know, in two days, five different people posting on the caregivers group about a very similar situation. Right. Frustration. You talk about explaining it to other family members. I know you have a son. We do. Very proud of our son. And how did you approach Aaron's disease with your son in the beginning and now? So he's been through it, living with himself. He witnessed his father obviously go through many accidents, go through battles and not be the active fit father as he was as Jacob was getting older, Aaron was able to do less. And um, so I guess in hindsight, Aaron, Jacob, always there was something different about his dad. And when Aaron was diagnosed, Jacob was going into what we call high school. So he was starting year seven, grade seven in Australia. And it was a big changing time for a teenager. So that he's going into big bigger school now. He's the little fish in the big school. So he had a lot to deal with. So I guess. We talked about everything. He lived it through and through. We didn't hide anything from Jacob. So he saw, he did see the anger as well, which I guess is shocking and grunting for a young teenager. And a lot of people would say, oh, you should have, you should have shielded him from that. He maybe shouldn't have seen that. But I, I believe has made him more compassionate and understanding to that. So we would, it would happen he'd see it in the face of it he'd get very frustrated himself and upset that dad was treating mum like this but I would always go and sit down with him afterwards and explain to him the disease what it was doing why his father was acting like this 
we'd get I'd get printouts and sheets. We got things from um, carers groups for for teenagers on coping with living with a chronic progressive disease or living with illness in the family. And for Jacob, another helpful thing was he had a friend who had a father who was a different as a different illness, but was going through something as well. So he had a close friend he could sort of talk to and rely on, and they knew that they could talk to each other. And again, that's he's a what they call, I suppose, a, a young carer, and it's important for young carers to have young carer support as well. So other carers who are young, who are going through or living with a family member who's, who's got a disease, that means that they can't do as much on the weekend or they can't have friends over or they can't go out or they have to help out a little bit more around the house. So having another person to understand that it's just the same age as you do for them, the young carers. Awesome. That's awesome. Do you have schedule? Do you, like day to day, just to make things easier for you or do you just wing it? And no. I don't mean to put you on the spot. Oh, do you talk? Do you? No way. I couldn't wing it. We'd fall apart if I winged it. Right. That's the thing. Yeah. What do you do to stay organized? I have a diary that weekly has normal, don't change. Nurses every second day. We have physio coming once a week. We have our OT will come out probably once every couple of weeks to check over because we've got the modifications happening. Um, we have doctors visit once a week. We have a podiatry appointment that happens once a fortnight. Uh, we have carers that come in. There's two different carers that come in three different days a week. I have to keep track of when they're coming. And then there's my life as well. <laughs> so if we didn't run a diary, I think we would just fall apart at the seams. Um, whiteboards are important also for memory because Aaron might forget. I might go out somewhere, might be gone for the day. and He'll go looking for me, searching for me in the house. So I've set him up for the day, told him he'll be right, made sure he's got something to eat, got a movie to watch, got his solitaire on his computer, and off I'll go to do what I have to do, and he'll forget. And he'll think that I'm still here. That's a great so, idea. Yeah, having a whiteboard telling people, telling, letting them know. We started with notes, post-it notes, go missing them. <laughs> yeah. So we get covered up. Get covered up, exactly. Go, go to the wayside. So. Whiteboards, diary, and yeah, my memory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a lot to remember. Is it is actually. And then there's the medication. So obviously got to remember to have enough medication and get them prior to being needed and order them from the camp from the pharmacist before you need them. Um, keep up to scripts, make sure the scripts are all up to date. Yeah, it's full time job. Being a carer is a full time job. Obviously. You have it down to a science. What oh, I don't know. Yeah, it falls apart occasionally, but yes. <laughs> what would you say to the newbies who they might just be starting out as a carer for a loved one or family member or friend? Um, what would you have to say to them? Like, don't freak out. Like, don't no, panic. don't freak out. Get, don't panic. Get help. Definitely in the beginning, I had a lot of help, a lot of suggestions from other carers, how they managed their lives, what they were doing, and I would take an idea from one person or take an idea from one group and change it slightly to suit me and my and Aaron and our needs and our habits and our what we're what we're capable of um, and what we're dealing with in our house. Obviously everybody's environment that they're living with as well, but you're not alone. Don't do it alone and don't think you have to cope alone. Ask jump on a carer's group, ask a question, you'll get 
bombarded probably with answers. You'll probably get so many answers that you'll right. be amazed that you never asked a question before. I think what we're going to do, if it's okay with you, um, we might share some links to some of these groups in the episode Absolutely. for people to uh, join. So one of the main groups that I'm part of is actually based in America. So it was started in the US. Um, it does have a lot of other carers now joining around the world, but it is primarily a US-based MS carers. That's where I get the most of my help, to be honest. So Sam, just like regular couples do, we all plan for the future. How, when you're dealing with a chronic illness that's progressive, even if progressive might be in little increments, you never know. MS is so damn unpredictable. How do you guys plan for the future? Like in what way? So we still plan, but we plan in a very different way. It's not the same as looking ahead, I don't think, as a normal couple. So you wouldn't look 20 years in advance and think, where are we going to be? Are we going to be retired? Because we're at that age now that 20 years from now we should be retiring. We're already really essentially retired now So because we're not working because of the chronic disease. So the planning is different. We, I guess, have done different things to We've aimed to get things done a little bit sooner than we might have done. I guess that's the best way of saying it. So you don't want to wait 10 years to do something. Let's do it in the next couple of years. Um, would have, we've brought a few bucket list things that we wanted to do and get done, like the, the modification things to the house. We, they're really important. We've got to get them done. So let's spend the money now and let's get them done rather than, than waiting. Let's have that holiday now instead of waiting those types of things. So I think you plan differently we don't stop planning because as you said ms is so different we don't know his progression has gone in at such fast rates at times and then it slowed down but it's still progressed the whole entire time it's still progressed so we know i guess it's hard to say but we know that there's an end in sight but we all have an end like i had an end i had five ends in right. came up so right. you just don't you can't stop you can't stop and yeah don't stop planning because you could miss out because nobody knows what tomorrow Right, then stop dreaming for... No, absolutely. Okay, Sam, we have covered so much. I think I've checked off practically everything on my list. I'm so excited for all this information. I, I know there are going to be people out there who are craving this kind of information. Can you, just to wrap it up, can you provide one piece of information to someone out there, maybe they're new, to the caregiver game, what could you tell them that would help them to more easily navigate the entire MS journey? Don't lose yourself. Don't think you're alone and ask for help when you need it. Do not be afraid to ask for help because that's the worst thing you can do is try and go it alone when there's somebody out there who might be able to give you a little bit of a suggestion or a tip or might be the person that comes to help you and makes that task or that challenge or what you're facing go from being something so huge to just being something you can get through with assistance. So, yeah, you're not alone. That would be my most important thing to tell somebody. Don't feel you're alone. You're the only one doing this. There are plenty of us out there, and we are there to support each other. That's incredible. Sam, I cannot thank you enough for coming on. Thanks, Thanks for having me. And I wish you all the best. I wish Aaron all the best. Tell him thank you so much for allowing us to kind of take a peek into your life, see the realities of uh, being a caregiver because it's, yep. it's an important role. 
It is, and it's it's really important, I think, for people to know that there are hundreds of us out there. Like you said, let's share the links, let's talk. I'm, I'm happy to answer questions. We've got a page for Aaron and we get heaps of caregivers contacting us through there. Yeah, definitely yeah. just important to know you're not alone. Awesome. We'll make sure that we do that. Well, thank you so much, Sam, and we'll, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Brooke. See ya. For more information on the MS Gym, check them out at themsgym.com, on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. If you'd like to know what I've been up to lately, you can find me at brookslick.com. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode of the MS Gym Podcast.